In the first verse of Hebrews chapter 6, we are told that repentance is among the elementary principles of the doctrine of Christ. In other words, it's one of the building blocks of a good Christian life. And that is clarified in that same verse by bringing into its context the idea of going on, on to perfection. And so, dear brethren, in order for Christian growth to take place, indeed to even reach toward that goal of perfection, this high calling of God in Christ Jesus, let it be clear to all of our hearts that we must always carry with us the elementary principle, the building block of a healthy Christian life known as repentance. And as we saw last Sunday, the Corinthian assembly needed to make use of this very idea. They needed to come to an awareness that they were not implementing the elementary principle of repentance and therefore, they may have been ever learning, but they were not coming to a knowledge of the truth that God was well aware of. And thanks be to God, his servant, the Apostle Paul, could also see very clearly. They were in need of being clear on the issues that were plaguing them, the leaven that was in their meeting, and they needed to clear this up. Using the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 11, we read there at the end of that verse, Paul says, In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. We return, therefore, to our study entitled Making Repentance Clear so that we can better understand what these principles are, what this should look like, so that when the Holy Spirit wants to speak to our lives about things that He wants to address, we have a parlance, we have a set of language, we have a vocabulary with which the Spirit can work, because indeed He's granted it to us through teaching and through His Word. This afternoon we're going to turn to an instance where a servant of the Lord made repentance very clear for himself and for his community. This individual is the prophet Daniel, and I will direct you to the ninth chapter of his book. You may remember that as a young man, likely around 15 years of age, Daniel, truly because of the sins of Israel, the community of faith within which he was dwelling, Daniel experienced some aspects of the divine chastening that came upon, in this case, the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin, who did not learn from the chastening that they witnessed, demonstrated against their sister, as it were, the northern tribes, having been carried away by the Assyrians and dispersed out of the land because of their sins, yet... As is said in the third chapter of Jeremiah's book, Judah was treacherous herself, even after what occurred to the northern tribes. And the point is that ultimately God's chastening came upon the community of faith that Daniel was a part of. 
And he was carried away captive into Babylon in the first of three deportations. And this would have been occurring around 605 BC. When we come to Daniel chapter 9, we will be learning that Daniel is recognizing that the ordained season of chastening visited upon God's people as a consequence of their sins was soon to expire in the mercy of God. It had run its course, and God, who is faithful, had promised that he would return and revisit his people after the span of 70 years. And therefore, we're looking at the man Daniel, who is now somewhere around 85 years old. Verse 1 says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes. So you see, Daniel has lived through Babylonian empire, and now he's in the Median phase of this empire, presently being ruled by Darius or Darius. We continue to read, This man was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign... I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. This sets up the context out of which, as we will be reading together, this remarkable expression of repentance flows out of the heart of God's servant Daniel. And it is a beautiful display of the very topic that we're investigating together. It's a beautiful display of making repentance very clear. There are five principles that we're going to look at as they're presented out of Daniel chapter 9. They are found in the first 19 verses of this chapter. For the first 19 verses present to us Daniel in the language of prayer in the language of repentance, in the mode of prayer. The remaining verses, the 20th through the 27th, is effectively God's answer to Daniel's prayer, and he gets this remarkable prophecy of the 70 weeks. That we will not be looking into in this study. But as we read through the first 19 verses, which we will do in sections we will discover five primary principles that will help us to understand how we can operate in our own lives in the language of clear communication to God when there are things that we need to repent about. Here is the first principle. Biblical repentance understands by the book the characteristics and consequences of sin. What we just read in these first three verses that, as I stated, set up the context out of which all of his prayer and all of his repentance flows, teaches us, these first three verses do, that none of this would have occurred, none of it would have had a nail to hang on, no point would have been brought to Daniel if he hadn't been in the Word of God. It teaches us that if we are ever going to enter into meaningful, clear repentance, 
It's only going to come as the result of getting into the Word of God and thereby discovering what the definition of God's will is and thereby being able to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in that faith. Are we practicing the descriptions of the Christian life that are spoken in God's Word? How would we know what our life is experiencing? What season of relationship we're presently in with God? Whether or not we're in a season of persecution or chastisement, for example. Daniel understood by the books what Israel was going through. In his case, he was able to read very clear statements about the nature of Israel's present experience. And so he need not be in some sort of bewilderment as it related to the relative sense of the absence of blessing and the difficulties of life. He was able to understand very clearly, this is the consequence of our past sinful behavior. And the way out of this necessitates that there is an acknowledgement of our sins, that we don't act like in some fashion or another, that I have no sin. For if we were to do that, we would be running right against the face of the Word of God that has identified our behavior and said, that is sin. We need to confess our sin, knowing that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to bring us out of this season of chastening and into a place of blessing. And so, dear brothers and sisters, let it be a basic principle of understanding how repentance works, that repentance will never function very deeply in any of our lives if we are not in the Word of God, if we are not under the ministry of the Word of God, if we are not allowing, as we spoke in last Sunday's teaching, the ministry of God to be brought into our hearts in a meek and receptive attitude. We need to receive with meekness this engrafted word that is seeking to save our souls. But when you come to church, you have to be willing to lay aside all uncleanness and all excess of sinful behavior and allow God to address your life because you will only get to an awareness of what God has to say to you through the books. He uses the Word of God. He uses the books to give us wisdom and understanding about what sin is and what the consequences of sin is so we can begin to put all of this together and locate ourselves, as it were, on the way to everlasting life, on the King's highway, on the King's map. We can understand where we are, where we need to go. This is precisely what was occurring in Daniel's life. He got into the books and thereby understood where he was in the plan of God. Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 11 was one such passage that Daniel would be able to read to understand by the books. Now, note with me, at the end of the third verse, Daniel speaks of the prophet Jeremiah and how Jeremiah spoke about there would be a season of 70 years of chastening 
in the context or in the experience of desolation. So the nature of the chastening would be what the King James Bible calls desolation. So that's difficulty, that's breakdown, that is a lack of blessing, that is deterioration, that is weakness of some sort, coming to Jerusalem and its people. When we go to Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 11, we read these words, And this whole land shall be a desolation. You see how this works? Dear brothers and sisters, the work of repentance is an elementary principle, which is not to say that it is sophomoric or it is juvenile or it is trivial. It's not elementary in the sense that it's like kindergarten and only scaled down to small words and small ideas, and that's what we mean. But at the same time, you can overcomplicate how God has ordained that He brings about development in a Christian life. What I'm showing to you here is all you had to do is read what the Word of God said would happen if Israel didn't repent. And he uses the very words. He said there'd be desolation. And Daniel looks around him and he says, we're experiencing desolation. So I think I understand what's going on. And then he can go into the remainder of what Jeremiah has to say. And he can begin to put together, what is my response? What should my response be? What sort of things should I expect out of God? Should I think this should just fade away, for example? As we'll see, Daniel doesn't believe that's the case. He realizes that God has a promise that's built in to the forecast of what Israel would experience if they did not cease their sinful ways. But he was very able to put together in his spiritual mind that if this is a demonstration of God's severe disapproval, then fasting and repentance and sackcloth and ashes is highly in order. So we continue to read. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. That's how he knew. He read his Bible. And it shall come to pass when 70 years are accomplished that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity. That is, for Babylon's iniquity. But it's a little silly to be blaming all of your troubles on big bad Babylon, the king of all kings. There's never been anybody like him in human history, who was the head of gold. you following what I'm saying? Can you imagine Israel looking into their circumstances and saying, nobody's ever had a trial like this before because there's never been a Nebuchadnezzar before. Even the Daniel's vision shows that there's only going to be one head of gold. And can you imagine the nation of Israel saying, the reason why we're going through this, now you rest, the rest of the nations could never understand this, and human history could never understand what we're going through, because you would never be under the same set of circumstances as someone with all this power. And that's why this is happening to us. That's not understanding by the books. You go to the books as Jeremiah did, and he realized, sure, God had an instrument formed for this purpose, but if Israel had been walking uprightly before God, no weapon formed against them would have prospered. And the story here is their chastening, as you will see Daniel expressing it very clearly. The story is their chastening, not Babylon's power, because when God finishes using his instrument, as he even calls him my servant, 
When God finishes using his instrument, the Babylonian powers and the Median powers, the Persian powers that flow out of that, then we just read that he will punish them for their iniquity. We continue to read in Jeremiah 25, the latter portion of the 12th verse, and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it a perpetual desolations. And I will bring upon that land all my words, which I have pronounced against it, even all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah hath prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall serve themselves of them also, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. In other words, these nations will be used of God in His sovereign providence to punish and chasten His people, but then He will also bring the nations to account for their own behavior. Well, what we're seeing here is when Daniel read his Bible, including Jeremiah the prophet, right in front of your eyes, this also was in front of Daniel's eyes, and he read, after 70 years, God is going to begin to bring punishment against these nations, out of which Daniel could readily fathom the release of God's people from their bondage will take place. And he fully believed that before it even manifested. And so similarly, dear brothers and sisters, I believe that we can see how God is working in our lives as we get into His Word and see the patterns of how God has dealt with the nation of Israel. For example, Paul says, these things were written for your admonition. Get in the Word. Read what has been the experience of others within the Word and begin to understand where you fit into that story. Now, if we go to the 8th verse of this same chapter, Jeremiah 25, we're going to read a further description of what Daniel would be reading about the nation of Israel, what their experiences were. And I want to bring to your attention a contrast or an observation that flows out of the 10th verse. So let's now go back to the 8th verse of Jeremiah 25. And we read there, Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, speaking to Israel, speaking to the southern tribes, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, saith the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, I referred to that a moment ago, that he calls him my servant, and I will bring them against this land and against the inhabitants thereof and against all the nations round about, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment and in hissing and perpetual desolations. Verse 10, Moreover, I will take away from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the candles. Now, the reason why I bring you to this verse in the 10th, or this, this chapter in the 10th verse in particular, is 
to show how Israel themselves failed to understand by the books what would be their experience if they failed to repent. God is explaining to them exactly what is going to happen if they don't respond to what the Spirit is saying through His servant, Jeremiah. Jeremiah was calling the nation to repentance. Jeremiah was calling Zedekiah to repentance and telling them, as we just read, plainly what would transpire. But what the 10th verse reveals is that their present situation was not in the experience of all this desolation. It didn't seem palpable to them at the time that God was so stridently against them, as the language states. Why do I say that? Because he says, I will take away the voice of mirth. That means right now, when Jeremiah is bringing this word to them, the voice of mirth is present. They have joy and prosperity and happiness and feasting and weddings taking place because he's saying, I will take it away, which means it is present. And so it's amazing how well they were carrying on while they were sinning against God's word. And this reminds us, of course, of the triumphalism that was also present in the Corinthian church, that in spite of the egregious sins that were present in them as an assembly, they were still glorying. They were still puffed up. They were still carrying on with church. And all of this points to the fact that they were unable to bring forth a clear repentance. And again, we're emphasizing in this first point, why is that the case? Because they were not going to the Word of God to have God's description of what their life is and seeing their violations against His Word. You know, sin is a violation of the law. And you use the principle of God's Word in general, not just like the Mosaic Law. You use the principle that sin is the violation of God's will, God's Word, God's instructions to our life. And you will not understand what that is, nor will you get it down deep into your heart, except you spend time in the Word and you see how God describes how your life should be lived. A more spiritual perception would realize that there will be no prosperity while this sinful behavior is occurring. I want to remind you of what took place in the days of Joash, the ninth king of Judah. You might remember that this king of Israel was for a period of time under the protection of Jehoiada, the high priest. And so it seemed as though that Joash's heart was genuinely toward the Lord and that as a consequence, God's blessing would attend his life and also be a part of Israel's experience. But what we discover is that it was not in Joash's heart to truly follow the Lord. Because as soon as Jehoiada the high priest passes away, the very man who saved his life from his grandmother, Athaliah, who would have taken Joash's life, protected him and nurtured him and directed him in the ways of the Lord, 
As soon as Jehoiada passed away, Joash began to backslide, began to listen to the wicked counsels of godless men and began to change the way in which Israel lived and the nature of their worship. And the son of Jehoiada, the man who was so gracious to Joash's life, his name is Zechariah, and he was a spiritual man. And I want to bring your attention to what happens in Second Chronicles chapter 24, beginning with verse 20. We read there that the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and he said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he hath also forsaken you. Now what my point is, is another demonstration of the sorts of things you can understand by reading the books. Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, looked into Israel's experience, though they were still prospering, because of the good influence of Jehoiada. And if you're not losing the thread of thought here, what you're discovering is that some people's lives bring forth a relative goodness and a relative obedience, not because it's actually in their heart, but because of some influence that we can loosely call or maybe accurately call common grace. There are just reasons why they choose to conduct themselves in a certain way that looks like obedience. But as soon as that influence is taken out from among them, they turn towards sin. They turn toward their own ways. And some one who understands things more spiritually will recognize that you will not prosper. You will not be blessed. Your future is going to be one of God departing and leaving and desolation if you don't repent. I hope you're hearing what I'm saying here. I'm stressing that you come to a clear understanding of the need of repentance by reading the Bible and understanding by the books how God relates to His people what obedience must look like. And it's so incredibly amazing that after Zechariah brings forth this word, we read in verse 21 that they conspired against him with Joash's approval, and they stoned the son of Jehoiada the high priest with stones at the commandment of the king. That's King Joash in the court of the house of the Lord, right in the temple. When Jehoiada recognized that Athaliah was worthy of divine judgment, he took her out of the temple so as not to, cons- uh, not to desecrate it. But here they kill the servant of the Lord. Verse 22 says, Thus Joash the king remembered not the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but slew his son. And when he died, he said, that is Zechariah said, The Lord look upon it and require it. 
Dear brethren, what I'm bringing to your attention is that if you read these things in the Bible, that very account, for example, and if you're in sin right now, and you're nonetheless experiencing some sort of prosperity, some sense that life is still working for you, and as a result, you're not ready to repent yet, then you're not going to clear this up before God. You're not going to operate in the healthy development that the Spirit of the Lord wants to bring about in our life, whereby He brings messages, He speaks to you through His Word, as you commune with Him in prayer, He convicts your heart, and then you change your behavior and you continue to grow. The way that you grow, maybe the community grows Because this was the case with Corinth, and it's the case, as I'm showing you here, and Daniel will see, the only way they grow is after extensive chastening, where they finally, after such an experience of such desolations, they finally, as it were, yield in some level to the Lord and say, okay, okay, I guess we'll stop doing this. That's not really making repentance clear. I mean, maybe at some level we finally get some kind of repentance. But, dear brothers and sisters, I hope that you're hearing what the Lord is saying to us. That's a puffed up, that's a glorying way of going through church. That's not what we're talking about when we're speaking about living in the fundamental building block of repentance in your life so that when God speaks to you, you realize, I have to conform to the Word of God. I understand by the books where I have to clear things up before God. And I don't think that just because right this very moment my life isn't falling apart, I don't thereby ignore the Lord because I'm still making money. I'm still fairly healthy. I'm still doing okay. You don't understand by the books, dear friends, if that's the case. I'm saying Daniel read Jeremiah and he knew why Israel was going through what they had been experiencing for 70 years. He was very clear. That's why he enters into repentance. And Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, said, You are not going to prosper, Joash. You were following God as long as my father was assisting you in your life. Now you're drifting away from his counsel. You're following the advice of your own evil heart. You are not going to prosper. The second principle I want to bring to your heart is that biblical repentance clears things up with God first through personal conviction and private petition. In other words, through seeking God and praying. Biblical repentance clears things up with God first. Back in Daniel chapter 9, beginning with verse 3, Daniel says, And I set my face onto the Lord God. This is a face-to-face communion with God first. To seek by prayer and supplication, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God. I went into the Word. I understood by the books. And then I didn't go counsel with ten other people so they could talk me out of my conviction. I'm not here stating that there isn't a place for counsel. But what I am saying is, 
If there is a place for counsel, it would be a part of your face-to-face communion with God. In other words, you're in the mode of wanting to know directly what the truth is that God is saying to my life. As opposed to knowing you're going through something, feeling some sort of conviction, going into the Bible, reading a particular text that really speaks to your issue, and then getting the advice of 5, 10, 15 other people that talk you out of what the book is saying to your life. You will never make repentance clear unless you get things cleared up directly with God first on the basis of what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to your life through His Word. And you get to that by seeking personally God through prayer and supplication. I want to continue to read. I'll start with verse 4 of Daniel 9. And I prayed unto the Lord my God, and I made my confession, and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love Him, and to them that keep His commandments, we have sinned, and have committed iniquity, and have done wickedly, and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto your appointed ministry. Neither have we been listening to your servants, the prophets, which spake in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Now, when you read these 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 words of Daniel that flow out of first understanding by the books, secondly, going directly to God and not going to the Jewish Sanhedrin, if you will, the the uh, synagogue rulers of the synagogue, which would certainly be in the Babylonian area and discussing with them as to how Israel should understand its experience. And maybe they would give a story about, well, you know, nations rise and nations fall, and the Babylonians are a particularly strong nation, and they always had it in for us. And, you know, Israel itself might presently feel like, well... Of course our circumstances are the way they are, because look at all the Arab countries that despise us. And overlooking, if you understand by the books, no, if you are not the head but the tail, it's because you have broken covenant with God, and your sins have brought this upon you. Do you hear what I'm saying? Daniel is very clear. He is saying, This is a story about us. This isn't fundamentally a story about Nebuchadnezzar. This is about us. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. We have rebelled. I know exactly the precepts that we departed from. I know exactly the service of the Lord that we refuse to listen to. This is the explanation. And he goes right to God to get this cleared up. This is the heart of... David, as he expresses himself in Psalm 27, which is a text that features in our study, and for the moment it features in this way. In the 8th verse of Psalm 27, we read, When thou saidest, Seek my face, my heart said unto thee, I will go get counsel from four or five other people about whether or not I should really be convicted about, say, for example, this unscriptural marriage. And I will let them talk me out of it. I know of a man who was in the ministry who has the position that that he divorced his wife and 
married another woman, and his position is, well, I counseled with the elders, and now I feel that this is justifiable. That's not understanding by the books. That isn't going directly to God. This is why repentance isn't clear, brothers and sisters. What we're reading, David say, let me go to the ninth verse, and then I'll go back to the eighth verse. Because I want to see, I want you to see that the context is there's some things in David's life, even in Psalm 27, that God is trying to get at. So, in the ninth verse, David says, Hide not thy face far from me. Put not thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Don't leave me. Don't forsake me, O God of my salvation. Do you realize that there's something that David's aware of? So, in the eighth verse, when you read this, dear brethren, when you said, seek my face, you need to understand that the saying that David's referring to is the conviction of his conscience. It is not the idea that God said, hey, David, seek my face, or that David is even speaking about a general principle of spiritual development that we should seek the face of God. There is a general principle to that end. But what he is saying, and incidentally, the language, when thou sayest, is not even in the Hebrew, but I'm not going to digress into that except to use that literary feature to support what I'm stating is that the concept is embedded in the activity that David undertakes. In other words, what he's saying is, when I felt conviction in my heart, when your spirit started to speak to me about something in my life that wasn't right, that's effectively you knocking on my door and saying, seek my face, get this cleared up, go into the word and find out what I'm talking about with you. Don't ignore what I'm saying. And so he says, when I experience that, that troubledness in my soul, you're hearing me? You know, Joash had that opportunity, didn't he? Because Zechariah was saying, hey, you guys are going off track. And that was a message. Hey, Joash, seek the Lord. Seek his face. Get yourself right with God. Jehoiada gave you a lot of good counsel. Go back to it before it's too late. But Joash was another one who ignored the word of God, felt as though his present prosperity was going to carry on indefinitely and didn't realize, no, Joash, you're living in the benefits of the common grace of God. Jehoiada was like common grace to you. When he was around, he just kept you in the right way. But it's not in your heart because you're not going to the word of God yourself, getting your face before God's face, seeking him and getting this figured out. In Psalm 51, this idea of Biblical repentance clears things up with God first through personal conviction and private petition. That is, you get in your prayer closet and you pray to God personally. This is also represented in Psalm 51, David's penitential psalm, verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. That's a form of your saying, seek my face. 
My sin is pressing on my heart. I need to seek you, Lord, and get this sorted out. And then he says in the fourth verse, As I have sought you, Lord, I have realized against thee, thee only, fundamentally, have I sinned. This may have also infected other people, and I may have dealt unjustly with other people as well through this sin, but the root of the problem is that I violated your word. I violated your love. I violated your kindness. I violated your grace against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil right in your sight. And now that I'm making repentance clear, I'm coming face to face with you, Lord. I want to get right back in your sight and I want to commune with you and seek you. And I want to speak about this issue, not in the language of the liberals, not in the language of the obfuscators, not in the language of the puffed up and the glorying, not in the language of those that just want to throw grace, grace on everything and say it's not a big deal. I'm not saying you need to be condemned or make something a bigger deal than the word of God describes it. But I am saying you need to get face to face with God through his word and realize you need to get this right between you and God in the way that he speaks with your life. Because David, if he did didn't do this, he could have gone outside his room and maybe picked up a pamphlet that might have some point to it that says the sin of Bathsheba and describes how Bathsheba should have been more careful as to whether or not she was behind closed curtains or something like that. And or when she was invited to David's door, why didn't she scream what you're instructed to do if someone is trying to take advantage of? You're supposed to scream if you're a woman. Why didn't she scream? We have no evidence that she did. So David could then, in his prayer time, say, Lord, I know I fell a little bit, but you know, if he hadn't done that or she hadn't done that, or if that hadn't happened, then this never would have happened. No, David is going to God's word and he's saying, no, I transgressed your word, God. They might have violated your word too, but I violated, violated your word directly myself against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. One commentator gives us these precious words. Genuine repentance begins with a clear understanding of the wrong committed. David notes his sin as well as the person, namely God, who was harmed by it and the justice of judgment against him. His words convey a sense of ready, willing confession, backed by true knowledge. Job understands that true understanding of evil is necessary for repentance. Remember the language of Job in verse 31 of chapter 24? Surely it is good, it is meet to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement. I will not offend any more. That which I don't see, teach me. If I have done iniquity, I won't do it anymore. Here again, we're still in the same topic of understanding by the books and then as a consequence of that, bringing your heart directly before God himself and getting this sorted out between you and him face to face. Job is saying, I understand that this chastening that I'm experiencing is relative 
to what you're trying to do in my life. And if there's something I'm not yet seeing, I'm not going to get it from my counselors. They're not going to guide me accurately. I need to go to you and say, if I don't see something, teach it to me. If I had done iniquity, show it to me and I won't do it anymore. Job himself ends not only by ceasing to accuse God. And I want to add that, by the way, I want to parenthetically comment that when I just made those remarks about Job and chastening, you might feel as though you should say, well, Job wasn't being chastened. Job was simply being tried. And you would not be thoroughly accurate because in the course of Job's trial, he began to accuse God. And if you know that book well, God ultimately addresses him on that matter and corrects him. So what I'm still trying to bring to your attention is how that you need to get directly before God to obtain a clear understanding. Several groups of people admit their wrongdoing readily, as David did. The Israelites, when Ezra read the law after returning from exile, that's found in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 11. The Ninevites, after Jonah delivers God's words, that's Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 6 and verse 8. And the crowd whose hearts are cut to the quick when they hear Peter preaching the word of God on the day of Pentecost. That's Acts 2 and verse 38. The repentance of the prodigal son in Jesus' story started when he came to his senses. Recognition of sin is central to biblical repentance. And so in all these different biblical cases where we do see repentance recognized, it was because the Word of God came to these people. Now, I want to show you a situation in the Bible where there is a lack of personal conviction. Because we're saying here in our second point that biblical repentance clears things up with God first through personal conviction. And we have just given you a number of examples, David in Psalm 27, David in Psalm 51, and then the examples that we have been referring to in the life of Job and in Ezra's day and Jonah and the men at the day of Pentecost. And each of these individuals were confronted with the Word of God and acknowledged their own sin and through personal conviction advanced. Now I want to show you something that shows someone who is not responding to his or her sin in the mode of personal conviction. Matthew chapter 18, where we read about the implementation of church discipline. And what I want to say ahead of time is the reason why the church discipline sometimes goes to the extent of a particular church member being designated now as a heathen and a publican. In other words, the designation is that we cannot view this individual as a regenerate person because of the process we have just experienced as a church and the behavior within that experience shows that there isn't even the elementary principles of the doctrine of Christ that, among other things, includes 
repentance, a response to God's word when it addresses your life with personal conviction and a willingness to change face to face with God. I'm going to read the verses, but repentance is not when the Apostle Paul has to write to you 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 3 Corinthians, 4 Corinthians, and then said, if I come the next time, I'm going to, I'm going to come with a rod. And if finally, maybe they decide to change a little bit. That's not the repentance we're talking about. Now, I'm not saying someone can't enter into repentance at the end of that series of events. And maybe at that point, make repentance clear. That's possible. But that's a pretty murky way of getting to it, I'm saying. And that is no pattern for your hearts. We are to be making repentance clear as a part of our normal Christian growth, is what I'm saying. So when we read the verses that speak to how the church must conduct the discipline of its members, we start in verse 15. It says, moreover, if thy brother, and it could be a sister, it's really not a biological des de designation here, it's, it's a, uh, or a gender designation, it's a familial designation, you know, your brother or sister in Christ. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault. Between thee and him alone. What's that looking like? If your brother has trespassed against you, and the assumption here is that that indeed did take place, and what that presupposes is that you know the word, and you recognize that this individual has trespassed the word as it relates to you. Now, if you're a pastor, by the way, the trespass may not necessarily be personal, in the sense that it is directly personally against the pastor himself relative to his own personal life. But the pastor is an overseer of the assembly. And if members are acting disorderly or divisively or disrespectfully or anything in that direction, then it's the pastor's responsibility in a somewhat different mode than are your responsibilities. And he is to address a brother or sister in terms of their violation against God's principles and therefore the way in which their leaven is entering into the church. You understand what I mean? In other words, the sinner in Corinth wasn't violating Paul personally in the sense that Paul was related to the stepmother or something like that, but because Paul was a overseer of that meeting, then it was a violation against him in that sense and he addressed it. But what I'm saying is, there is a violation of the word of God. That's called a trespass. One goes to the sinning person and you describe what that fault is. That is, you bring the word of God to their attention on this issue and you explain to them that your actions are either commissions of sin or omissions that constitute sin. One way or another, you are in violation of God's word. And verse 15 says, if he will hear you, then you've gained your brother. If that individual will open his or her heart to the word of God and respond to God now at this point, as it were, face to face with God. Are you hearing what I'm saying? In other words, you, you go to them alone to bring it as quickly as possible to a face to face meeting between that individual and God, because 
changes to placate the pastor, changes just to fit into the culture, changes just to make life work better. Those are what we call double-mindedness. And such an individual, James says, is unstable in all his or her ways. They change based on circumstances, but four months later, they're right back to where they were before. That is not making repentance clear. You make repentance clear when you are are face to face with God and you know that the sin that you are committing is against God. It might be that a sister has brought it to your attention. It might be that a fellow member of the assembly has or perhaps your pastor. But the interest in bringing it to your attention is to bring you face to face with God so that you can understand by the books what sinful action is at issue here, and you can get it right through personal conviction. But as I'm stating, we're looking into a situation where there's a lack of, of definite personal conviction because we often get to verse 16. Verse 16 says, if he will not hear you, then you take with you one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word might be established. Now, I hope you can hear with me. We are already drifting away from the entire arena where clear repentance takes place because this is starting to turn into something that's akin to the influence of Jehoiada on King Joash, by which I mean this person is not changing when a single individual comes to him or her and seeks to bring them face to face to God's word in God's presence. They don't experience personal conviction. They aren't receptive to the word of God. Now, if you add one or two more, and if they begin to respond under that context, there's an open question as to how real is this repentance? And it's intended to manifest that to you. As I said a moment ago, it's not to say that someone can't come to an awareness and truly enter into full repentance, but that individual has to then ask him or herself, why did I not respond when a single person came to me and said, this isn't right before God? Why wasn't the word of God enough? Why did I need two or three other people who bear the same witness? And that also includes perhaps ideas of this will now be a perspective of me that the church will generally hold. You realize that maybe most of the church is not in agreement with your position. I mean, these sorts of things happen in churches where the change of behavior is a product of you testing the winds of public opinion and how people will align with you or not align with you. And you only change if enough people decide or not so much decide if enough people agree with the original analysis that said this is a trespass against God's word. Well, then we get to verse 17 and we read, if he neglects to hear them, that is yourself and and one or two more people, then you tell it to the church. Now suppose that a change happens after you tell it to the church. Perhaps in the, in the providence of God, he uses that 
to bring someone at least to the beginning of some path toward full repentance. But what preceded those two steps, or that third step, are two other steps where no personal conviction was happening. A single individual came and simply explained, here's what the word of the Lord says about this action of yours, or lack of action, and I just want to help you, brother or sister, I love you, I want to point out that this is not in agreement with God's word, and they don't listen to you. I mean, this isn't a matter of Would you help me understand that a little bit more? That's not what we're talking about here. The point is, is they don't listen to you. They're not convicted by that method. So you bring one or two more. They're not convicted by that. So you bring it to the entire church. And if they change at that point, is it repentance? We hope so. But it's awfully murky. And at the end of the day, all of us, to have real clear repentance in our hearts have to get back face to face with God and have one story. I've sinned against God. It's not just the pastor's opinion doesn't like what I do. It's not just the church in general has a different viewpoint than I have. That's not repentance. Repentance is when you realize you have sinned against God. You violated His word. That's what at, that is what is at issue here. And it might be explanatory of many of the Difficulties that you're going through in your life. Of course, the section ends with, but if he neglect to hear the church, then he shows no signs of regeneration. Let him be on to you as a heathen and a publican. Well, you might remember with David, David actually was one of these lackeys. He lacked personal conviction for a season in his life. He was a lackey. Until he eventually became a convict. He got conviction. He put himself behind bars. He locked himself up to God and got things right with God. Why do I mean he was a lackey? Well, because David had sinned against Bathsheba. You can read Deuteronomy and discover that's a sin you need to repent of. And he wasn't repenting of it. Thankfully, he needed one brother by the name of Nathan to come to him and tell him that he had sinned against the word of God. And David didn't fight against him like Joash fought against Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, have him put to death. You resist him, fight against him, get out of my life. And thereby, now we needed, you know, Nathan and a couple other prophets, and then eventually bring the whole issue between the assembly of Israel. And then if David doesn't listen then, then he gets ejected from being the king like Saul. He winds up at the witch of Endor's feet or something, trying to figure life out. You following what I'm saying? David was a lackey, but then he put himself in a position of acknowledging, I'm a convict, I'm convicted, I've sinned against God. You see in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 15, when Nathan departed out of David's house, we read the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare on to David. Isn't it interesting how that's worded? It doesn't say the Lord struck David's child. It says the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare on to David and it was very sick. David, therefore, moved from being a lackey, lacking conviction, lacking personal conviction. He wasn't getting this right with God. He was going on his way. And David put himself behind the bars, as it were, of 
a space within which he was not to allow himself to enjoy the pleasures of the kingdom, enjoy life, enjoy regal glorying. He wasn't going to be puffed up with his royal regalia in his feast. We read in verse 16, David therefore sought God for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And ultimately he accepted the chastening when God did not relent and God took his child. So that's personal conviction. We need that in order to move into what the second emphasis in this second point is, and that is prayer, private petition. Do you remember that we're told in Daniel chapter 9 that Daniel set his face onto the Lord God to seek? First, he sought God. He had personal conviction through reading the word of God and realized Israel has sinned. And he got directly before God and told the story of God's word and not the commentaries and the modern preachers that water it down. And then he enters into prayer. But I want to make the point as to why that personal conviction is so necessary. It's so necessary because you're wasting your time trying to pray your way out of these circumstances or into some sort of blessing if you haven't first acknowledged your sin, if you haven't first sought God face to face and entered into personal conviction and expressed yourself in some of the ways that we have read where Daniel says, we have sinned, we have violated your word, we haven't listened to your servants or David saying, I, against thee and thee only, this, this child that is in Bathsheba's belly, that's the wife of Uriah who's bearing a child. It's mine, but it's adulterous. David's saying that. Now he can go pray. Now you can go pray, Daniel, because you've understood by the books and you've come under personal conviction, even though he's not the one who really was the egregious violator. But nonetheless, he isn't glorying and puffed up. He's seeing the problem of the community of God and he's coming before the Lord before he starts to pray his way out of it. And he acknowledges the sin and he makes it clear before God. The scriptures tell us he that covers his sin shall not prosper. But if you confess and forsake them, God will give you mercy. Psalm 66, verse 18 through 20. Remember these words. David says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. But verily, God hath heard me. He hath attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Isn't that beautiful, brothers and sisters? That you can get to God's mercy. God is a merciful God. Even if you needed Nathan to finally get your attention, or if you needed Nathan plus one or two more, or even if you needed the entire church or the entire community of Israel, as it were, to get your attention, you can get to a place of mercy if God be willing, which is Hebrews chapter 6, by the way, which we had for our scripture reading at the beginning of our meeting, if God permits, 
I'm not saying that you can just presume on God, but I am stating, as we're reading here, you can get to a place of mercy, but you're going to have to pray your way into that. You're going to have to seek God. If you've been an egregious violator and a practitioner of sin, you're going to have to seek God, brothers and sisters, to get your way out of it. Daniel had to, and he wasn't even the primary violator. But before you even begin that prayer pursuit, you need to acknowledge the sin. You can't look past the iniquity that is in your heart. Pretend it's not there. Make excuses for it. Because if you do, God's not listening to your prayer. Maybe He's listening to a little bit of it. He's kind of hard of hearing under those circumstances by divine choice. I can't quite hear you. I hear a little bit. You need a little bit of help. Oh, I'm not really sure what you're asking for. But when you clear it up and you confess your sin and you get this clear, then God's all ears. Oh, I'm hearing you now. Listen to these beautiful words first from the Puritan John Flavel. And I think perhaps for this Sunday, we might close with this second point, And I feel quite certain we can address the remaining three in one more study. But I want these messages, like any message, not to overfill your capacity, but also for you to be able to digest and ponder and assimilate what the Spirit is saying to our hearts. These words from John Flavel. Friend, thy stony heart must feel remorse and anguish for sin. It will cost thee some sad days and sorrowful nights before thou canst have peace with God. It will cost thee many a groan, many a tear, many a hearty cry to heaven, if ever peace be made between God and you. You must, quote, Take with thee words and turn to the Lord, saying, Take away all iniquity and receive me graciously. Oh, for one smile, one token of love, one hint of favor. The child of peace is not born without pangs and agonies of soul. You'll see with me when we read through Daniel chapter 9, you'll get a sense of the agony and the prayer and the supplication that Daniel is bringing before his God. He's repenting on his behalf and on behalf of his community and it's costing him something. He's fasting. He's in sackcloth and ashes. He's taking time to bring his sin before the Lord. He's digging into the Word to figure this out and get this all sorted out. And he's going face to face with God, getting a full dose of God's light and holiness not needing other people to wrestle him into some sort of understanding of his violations. And what's so beautiful about what Flavel is saying is that there is a place of peace. There's such a beautiful place of peace with God, but it isn't easily obtained. You can say, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Yes, that's in potentia. It's real to the extent that you're not then going on and adding sin to sin, even as you confess to be a Christian. Otherwise, we would never need Matthew chapter 18, would we? And helping people out of their sinful patterns in the church. We would never need Paul saying to the Corinthians, you need to get this cleared up. Your glory is not good. Your gathering as a church is for the worse, not for the better. But you can get to a place of peace with God because God is merciful. If you just simply make use of 
the elementary principle, a basic building block that we need all the time. We hope not to be sinners egregiously or even otherwise, constantly. That's not what I'm saying. But if you're walking with God and you're in the Word and you're letting God transform your life, then you need to be confessing your sins. Not like a Catholic, but sometimes indeed to one another and praying for one another that you might be healed. That's what Daniel was doing. He was public about it. He was out about it. It's in his book. We all can read it. And he sought his God and he found a place of peace. Well, I want to close with some words from the great revival preacher, Jonathan Edwards, who studied the heart so very carefully. Such a good source of of counsel and direction as it relates to repentance. First of all, Jonathan Edwards points out the native depravity of the human heart outside of regeneration. And we must all understand that that's from whence we have come. Sure, we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. Yes, we're regenerate. I understand that we do have a new heart, but there's a lot of transforming that has to take place. The old man has to be put off and the new man has to be put on. And you can't say, I have no sin. You're a liar. If you want to have fellowship with God, you've got to keep coming to the light and letting Him purge more of that out of you. So Jonathan Edwards says, All men are born with a dreadful depravity of nature. We come into the world as full of poison as young vipers or any deadly serpent. There are in us the seeds of all sins, even murder, idolatry, blasphemy, and the worst sins that are ever committed. The scripture tells us we are all by nature children of wrath, that none can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, that we are all shaped in iniquity and conceived in sin, that the old man is corrupt, that we need to be born again in order to be created anew, that we may bear the image of the last Adam, Jesus, as we have borne the image of the first. I will observe initially here that that process of being renewed by the Spirit of God, being transformed in the spirit of our mind so that we grow up into Jesus and all things. Once again, we put off the old man. We put on the new man. That is a process, brothers and sisters. And if you ever looked into your life and you've recognized sin and it's troubled you, at one level I want to say that's good that it's troubled you. But if you're surprised as if, how could I have possibly sinned? There's something about that orientation that is possibly unhelpful and not humble and is actually a hiding from who you really are. I'm not saying if you're regenerate, you're still by nature a child of wrath, but I'm saying as Jonathan Edwards just described our former situation, quite apart from any of us being basically holy and basically good, and we just needed Christianity to put the cherry on top and make us perfect, and we're such lovely people, and how could anything poisonous come out of our lives. Quite to the contrary, you're messed up before you come to Christ. There's all sorts of things in you that you haven't even discovered yet. They just need to be tempted and tried. So when you sense or you 
discover these things creeping out of your life as God allows trials to test the depth of Christ-like character within you and you discover dross percolating to the top, certainly be ashamed and be afraid, but also recognize this is a part of my Christian development. I need repentance as a basic elementary aspect of my life so that God can bring me forward. Then Edward speaks of a godly contrition for sin, which incidentally I hope you are realizing this is in keeping with our second point here. The second point taken from Daniel's prayer in the third through sixth verses of Daniel 9, we're saying biblical repentance clears things up with God through personal conviction and private petition, seeking and praying to God. And Edward's Speaking of a godly contrition for sin, says the following, Sin cleaves by nature fast to our souls. This is especially true before regeneration. But unless we let the Word of God transform us, have you ever read Romans chapter 12? You need to present yourself as a Christian, as a living sacrifice to be transformed. Amen? Sin cleaves by nature fast to our souls. It is grown into us, firmly fixed in our very nature. Do you realize that? There are things about your life that are intertwined. They're grown into who you are until God, by His Spirit, addresses it. This hideous, dreadful, most poisonous, loathsome monster gets a hold of us so deeply by nature that it has fixed its claws even to the very center of our souls. And it cleaves faster to us as we grow older. And therefore, it cannot be rent from us without rending our hearts. The heart is so hard that it cannot be softened without breaking it in pieces. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you've never experienced this, then you haven't been making repentance clear in your life. There are things that God is speaking to us about. Maybe you're glorying right past these things. You're puffed up and floating like a hot air balloon right above all of these things. And the reason why you're not dealing with it because in some sense it scares you. And, and, and that's a partly healthy reaction. When Daniel read the book of Jeremiah, he realized how severe this chastening was. He set himself to prayer and fasting to get himself out of it. And he was not even the chief violator, but that's how serious he took it. And what I'm saying is maybe it's because there are things in your life that just go right to the center of your being and you don't want to face it. You don't want to deal with it. This is why the Christian churches lack repentance when they're in direct violation of God's word and they're saying to themselves, we're going to prosper anyway, we're going to prosper anyway. You're not going to prosper, dear Christian, dear Christian community, unless you obey God's word. But God, God will respond to a contrite heart. God will help you get that monster out of your being. He will begin to get those claws out from the very center of your soul. He'll begin to extract that poison out of your lips and your tongues and your heart and your bitterness and your anger and your adultery and you cannot cease from sin and all these various things, God will get that monster out of you. But not if you don't go to the book and see what the book has to say about your life and then get face to face with God and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. 
Lord, I've sinned against you. Lord, I need your help. Lord, cleanse me from this iniquity. Finally, Edwards says, Therefore, there must be a contrition and godly sorrow for sin. The sinner must look back on his past life and actions with a hearty grief. And it must break his heart in pieces to think of it. It must break his heart to think how base and vile he has been, how filthy and sinfully he has conducted himself. True repentance melts the soul down to think how he has disobeyed God, offended his maker, and dishonored his holy name, makes his very heart like melted wax in the midst of his being. Maybe somebody thinks these words are archaic. We don't talk like this these days. These are now considered as being over the top and somewhat condemning. We don't get so introspective. We have realized that that isn't a good path towards successful Christian living. Men don't preach like this, Brother William, any longer. I would observe in closing that may be true, but we also don't experience the kind of revivings that occurred under such men as Jonathan Edwards. Mm -hmm.